0: If you have your Bibles this morning, I would invite you to turn with me to Luke chapter 23. Uh, We'll be in verse 50. If you'd like to follow along, I uh, invite you to... You're more than welcome to use those black Bibles in front of you as well. The passage that we're going to read can be found on page 831. What we're going to read this morning takes place right after uh, Jesus dies. It's the, the events that immediately follow Christ's death. Um, I'll go ahead and read for us this morning and I'll pray and, and then we'll take a closer look at it. But once again, Luke chapter 23, verse 50. This is what it says. Now there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council, a good and righteous man who had not consented to their decision and action. And he was looking for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down and wrapped it in a linen shroud and laid him in a tomb cut in stone where no one had ever yet been laid. It was the day of preparation and the Sabbath was beginning. The women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. On the Sabbath... They rested according to the commandment. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. And they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb. Stooping and looking in, he saw the linen cloths by themselves. And he went home marveling at what had happened. And now, Lord, as we go to your word, I pray, Father, that uh, we would see this event for what it is, an actual historical event that changed the course of human history. Would you be with us this morning, Lord, as we study? And in your holy name I pray. Amen. According to a CNN news source um, from April 13th of this year, uh, based on a survey, there is now more people in America that claim no religion than there are Christians. They referred in this article to these people as religious nuns, N-O-N-E-S, people with no affiliation whatsoever. In the 44 years that this survey has been conducted, this was the first time that that had ever happened. Uh, The the article states that the meteoric rise of religious nuns began in the early 1990s and has grown 266% since 1991. According to this article, there is much debate as to what is causing such a large wave of Americans to claim no religion, but it is no doubt a generational trend. Um, Robin Blumner, who identifies as an atheist, and she's the executive director of the Richard Dawkins Foundation for Reason and Science, is quoted in the article. This is what she says. She says, we are seeing the rise of a generation of Americans who are hungry for facts and curious about the world. Now, while I'm not an atheist, I actually could agree with Blumner. I do believe that Americans are hungry for facts and curious about the world. It's in our very nature to be inquisitive. We are created to be inquisitive And perhaps we're so hungry for facts because facts are so hard to come by now. There is, as you look around, and you've probably felt this yourself, there is an overwhelming sense of distrust among people for what they read on the internet and what they see on TV. This is why the very term fake news has been ingrained into our vocabulary. And unfortunately... With social media and our interaction with it, there are multiple layers that you often have to force yourself through, given any specific event, in order to get the truth of what actually happened, right? In our, in our culture, we've got to dig a little bit more to get the full picture of what has actually happened during certain events. I experienced this firsthand this past week as I read about the tragic news story of the fire that broke out in the Notre Dame Cathedral. As I was reading through social media posts and articles, I saw one article that said that Notre Dame was completely totaled, completely destroyed. The whole thing has burned down. And the very next article I see claims that Notre Dame has experienced minimal damage and most of the artifacts, historical artifacts, have have survived. Those are two very different stories. Which one is it? And so I found myself actually looking for pictures, looking for live feeds, looking like what in the world has happened. I need to see it for myself to be able to understand the truth behind this story. Social media and the internet hasn't done us any favors in this regard. And because of the age and the culture that we live in, We are actually, we may not realize this, but we are being programmed to be skeptics. And I'll admit it. I I grew up in this. I am a product of that. I am a natural skeptic. I am often the first one that says, if I don't see it, I don't believe it. I won't believe believe it unless I've seen it. But I'm afraid because of how we've been programmed, too many times we will write off an event or make up our mind too early about what has actually happened. Uh, Norm Geisler is a a man, he's got his PhD in philosophy, and he has written about how there is a difference between being open-minded and empty-minded. An open-minded person looks at all the facts looks at all the evidence, looks at all of the arguments as a whole in order to make the 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 most educated decision. Geiser goes on to say that an empty-minded person actually disregards or writes off certain facts or evidences for whatever reason and comes to a conclusion prematurely without truly looking at the full picture. And so as we read this story of Jesus, in our modern context, I understand your skepticism. I get it. I can relate to that. But can I encourage you this morning that if you sit here and you're a skeptic, can I encourage you to be open-minded and not write off the story of Jesus because you think you have all the details? May I suggest perhaps that you need to just take some more time to see the full picture. Whenever I am skeptical of any kind of story and I want to find out the truth, I will often go to the source. I want to find somebody who's been there that can tell me that they've seen this with their very own eyes. If I myself can't have my eyes on the event, I want to find somebody that, that has, right? And this will help me Understand the full story and would be rather significant evidence. And so in terms of the account of Jesus, while I personally was not there, we do have the account of eyewitnesses. This morning, what we read was an historical account of an historical event. What we read earlier was not any kind of teaching. It wasn't a philosophy. It was history. It was an event. An event that all Christianity leans on. An event that, if it's true, validates all of Jesus' teachings. An event that, if it's true, determines your eternity. Do you understand the severity Of this. If I was told that there's a chance that I'm going to suffer for my entire eternity, that I would spend my entire eternity suffering, I would pour hours and hours and hours and hours into study to ensure that I was 100% confident that this event This resurrection really did or didn't happen. And so I would like to look at this event together this morning. I'd like to take a closer look at this event in history. And I like this passage that we read earlier because there's very little insertion of commentary on Luke's part. Luke was a doctor and he wrote this book. And in the passage we read, there's some commentary about this Joseph uh, guy of Arimathea. Luke inserts that he was searching for the kingdom of God and that, that that he didn't agree with putting Jesus to death. And so there's a little bit of opinion in there. But other than that, this is all objective. Luke is not telling you his opinion. He's just telling the basic facts. He, he's reporting it. He's saying this is what happened, and then this is what happened, and this is this is what happened. And you'll actually see that this is the whole purpose of Luke's book as a whole, to, to give an orderly account. If you were to turn to Luke chapter 1, the very beginning of this book, you would see Luke's motivation for writing. I'm going to go ahead and, and read it to you. This is his whole purpose for writing his book. At the very beginning, he says, Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who uh, from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. See, Luke is writing specifically to this guy named Theophilus. And he's saying, hey, Theophilus, I have been investigating this Jesus guy from the very, very beginning." I have sat down and spoken with, with the eyewitnesses and I have heard their stories and I am writing all of this down in order to give an orderly account. I am recounting history. Why? To give you certainty for what you believe. Luke's purpose in writing this is to give you certainty for what you believe. So the whole purpose of the book of Luke here in the Bible is to give us evidence, to recount history from eyewitnesses. And so let's take a look and take the time to, to look more in depth at this account that we read earlier and answer just the question, what happened? What happened in this event? After Jesus was crucified, there was this man named Joseph who requested Jesus' body for the sole purpose of giving him an honoring uh, burial, a proper burial. And as Joseph laid Jesus' body into the tomb, there was this group of women who were followers of Jesus, and they saw where Jesus was buried. You have to know that when they arrive at an empty tomb, which we'll get to, there is no doubt, there is no question that they had the right tomb. They knew where he was buried, they saw it, right? And then we're told that they returned back home to prepare spices and ointments. Uh, the purpose of these spices and these ointments was actually to preserve the body the, the best that they could. Uh, Jews did not embalm corpses, and so these spices and ointments would actually help diminish the stench of a, of a dead body. And this is something that they would actually do during the burial time, but we're told that they're coming very close to the Sabbath day. Now, in Jewish culture, uh, they didn't handle corpses on the Sabbath day. And the Sabbath day began at sunset on Friday. And so these women actually did not have the time to uh, essentially anoint this body with, with these spices. And so they went back home to prepare it. And like good Jewish people, they went back and rested on the Sabbath day. And so Sunday arrives, and the women go... And they prepare to douse a dead body with their spices. Now, it's important to note that these women expected to find a dead person. The resurrection was not on their mind. Uh, It was not anticipated because Jesus got the same treatment that all dead people received. They didn't go into it thinking he, he was alive. They didn't go to check to see if the tomb was, was empty. The fact that they brought these spices with them showed us very much so they still thought that he was dead. They were expecting to find a corpse. They were looking for something dead in a place designated for dead people. And to their surprise, they show up and the tomb is empty. The stone has been rolled away. And Jesus's body is missing. Now, at this point, they still don't know what's going on. They don't think he's alive. They're not saying he must have risen. No, no, they're looking at it. They're perplexed. They're thinking Jesus's dead body isn't here. So Jesus's dead body must be somewhere else. What's going on? And then in the middle of all this confusion, these two men that were told later, or in other accounts are angels, appear to the women to shed some light on the discussion. And they asked the question, why are you looking for the living among the dead? Almost as if to say, you're in a tomb. A tomb's for dead things. You won't find Jesus here because he's alive. He's alive. And then they remind the women about Jesus, what he said before he does He said, don't you remember that these things had to happen? Jesus laid this out for you. He told you that all these things were going to take place. He told you that he was going to be delivered in the hands of sinful men and he told you that he had to, to, to suffer on the cross and he told you on the third day he was going to rise again. Don't you remember that? Are we going crazy here or did, did that happen? He told you those things. Almost as if to say, you may be surprised by the empty tomb but this is all part of God's plan. This is going swimmingly. Everything is going according to plan. We're right on time. No, in fact, you don't need to be confused. We're right on schedule. We're right on schedule. This is part of God's divine design. And so naturally, these women, as they're still probably trying to make sense of this and understanding this, they go back to the other disciples to tell them what they found or rather what they didn't find. And certainly, these disciples who were Jesus' closest followers, these disciples that walked with him daily for three years, these disciples who witnessed miracles would believe this, right? And would understand it. No, we get a much different picture in verse 11. It actually tells us that these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. The word idle here means Nonsense. Nonsense. And it was actually a term used to describe the type of stories that people who were not all that in touch with reality would tell. What the disciples are telling to the women is, you are crazy. I saw him dead. Have you lost a few screws in that head of yours? Because this is just a fairy tale. This is just a fairy tale. This can't possibly be true. Here are the original followers of Jesus that walked with him daily and heard the teachings and saw the miracles, and they don't believe these women. They write it off as nonsense tales. Don't you see that in the very real sense, the very first skeptics to Jesus' resurrections were the disciples themselves, his closest followers. And so if you're a skeptic here today, I've got good news for you. You're in good company. You can certainly relate to these men because Jesus' closest followers were the original non-believers. They needed to be convinced that this event occurred. They needed hard proof. In a sense, they would fit right into our modern world, would they not? You know, this show me attitude fits very well into our modern context. And so we get this picture of this group of men who are skeptical. And we're actually told from earlier accounts and other accounts that when Jesus had been crucified, they actually locked themselves indoors for fear of their own life. What changed for these disciples? This idle tale that the women shared with them became a reality because Jesus physically appeared to them. They saw him with their very own eyes and touched him with their very own hands. If you're one of the disciples, you're thinking, I saw that Jesus was dead. I know that he was dead. I saw them put him into the tomb, and now he's really alive because I saw him alive. You don't understand. I don't only really saw him, but I felt him. I grabbed his hands. I put my fingers where his wounds are, and I experienced Jesus not on, uh, on an emotional level, but on a very intellectual level, a physical level. I saw Jesus. He is alive he walked with us he talked with us he ate with us he's either alive or i have completely lost my marbles i've gone completely insane you see people accuse christianity of being a blind faith but that couldn't be any further from the truth there is nothing blind about this There is nothing private about these accounts. Jesus was out in public walking with people. And as Paul wrote that passage, he's listing all of the witnesses that he knew of. He he appeared to Cephas and he appeared to the 12. And then he appeared to more than 500 people, many who are still alive. Almost as, as if to say, if you think I'm crazy and you don't believe me, here is a list of 500 other people that you can go and talk to. And they will back me up. And their story will be the same, that Jesus indeed is alive. So you have to understand that there is a very intellectual step that has to be taken. When you examine all the evidence, you come to find that there is a slight element of faith, but it is a far cry from a blind faith because there's evidence and it's strong And we've barely scratched the surface this morning. No. What we believe isn't based on a teaching. It isn't based on a philosophy, but an actual event that actually happened. And this event validates Jesus' teaching, and it's why we follow him. We don't follow Jesus because he's smart. We don't follow Jesus because he's, he's just this good guy. No, we follow him because he conquered death and we have proof. That's why we follow him. And if you don't believe it, at least be convinced that these original men who saw the resurrected Jesus did believe it. And they went to their graves believing it. Chuck Colson as a quote in regard to this, um, Colson served as a, uh, a special counsel to President Nixon, and he ended up going to jail due to his involvement in the Watergate scandal. Um, and he later became a believer, and this is what he had to say about the resurrection of Jesus. He says, I know the resurrection is a fact, and Watergate proved it to me. How? because 12 men testified they had seen Jesus raised from the dead. Then they proclaimed that truth for 40 years, never once denying it. Everyone was beaten, tortured, stoned, and put in prison. They would not have endured that if it weren't true. Watergate embroiled 12 of the most powerful men in the world, and they couldn't keep alive for three weeks. (laughs) You're telling me 12 apostles could keep alive for 40 years? Absolutely impossible. You've got these skeptical men who were terrified to be associated with Jesus at the time of his death. And now they are proclaiming his resurrection publicly and proudly. And 11 of those 12 original disciples were put to death because of it. And the 12th one received the consolation prize of being exiled. All of them persecuted. And so, if this is true, and I'm convinced it is, What does that mean for us? It means that where there's death, there's life. Jesus came to overcome death to give us life. In Jesus, there is life. Those who proclaim that Jesus is Lord and Savior experience life. See, this is the whole story of the Bible. If you don't believe me, you can read it for yourself. I would encourage you to do that and not take my word for it. But the whole story of the Bible is this. God, in his original design, created us to be with him. He created us to be in a perfect, life-giving relationship with him. And then something happened. Sin entered the world. We rebelled against God and our own sin has separated us from God, has broken us off from God. And the worst news is that there's nothing that we can do to get back. The sins cannot be be, be repaid by good deeds. They they cannot be restored. Uh, You cannot find life by just being good enough. And so God in his love and in his mercy sent Jesus Christ who paid the price for this sin by dying on the cross and rising from the grave. And everyone who believes in Jesus and follows him, has eternal life. And this life for you can start today. It can start in this moment. And the beauty of it is that it'll never go away. It's gonna last forever. Many of you in this room are looking for satisfaction. You're looking for fulfillment. You're looking for life and you're not sure where to find it. And it has left you feeling empty and dead inside. My daughter and I, she's seven years old and she is now old enough to do some of these larger puzzles, 500 piece, 750 piece, 1,000 pieces. And so it's kind of become a hobby for my daughter and I to put these puzzles together. And we both expect that when we set out to do a puzzle, all the pieces should be there, right? We, we trust that the manufacturer of this puzzle has included all the pieces. And I think you can relate to the fact that there is something so discouraging about getting to the end of the puzzle that you've just bought from Goodwill, and it's missing pieces. (laughs) And because it was from a, a thrift store, it's missing a lot of pieces. And you can't really see the full picture. You can't even make out the full picture. You've spent hours and hours putting it together and you come to the end and you, you just, uh, you feel empty. There's no satisfaction in that. You just look at it and say, that's it. I, I can't even tell if that's a dog or or a, or a moose. Like what is this thing that I've put together? It's missing pieces. Our lives are so broken and so fractured by our own sin that we can't possibly see the full picture of our life because it's missing pieces and it leaves us disgruntled. It leaves us examining our own life, saying, that's it? This is all there is? There's got to be more than this, right? It's a mess. And then what we try and do is we try and take pieces from other puzzles, and put it in and we fool ourselves to think that they fit and we kind of just like jam them in there and we say look it's finished it's fixed and other people look at the puzzle and they're like really like do you think that's done in your own life, you take other pieces, you take other things and you try and put them in your life and you, you try and convince yourself, my life is complete because I have this or my life is complete because I've done this. My life is complete because I've, I've inserted this, this piece. However, those things that you think will complete you will only leave you more empty than before because they're dead things. They're dead things There is no hope in such things because they have no power. They have no power to jolt you to life. There's an irony to this. As those angels spoke to those women, they asked a question that could be asked of us. Why are you looking for the living among the dead? Why are you looking for the living among the dead? You are trying to get life, gain life through dead things in dead places. But there's nothing to be found there. It's only empty. We are a broken people that seek the living among the dead. However, I know a man named Jesus. A man named Jesus who conquered death so that you may experience life. And not only do I believe in this risen Jesus, I believe in the transformation from death to life that he brings, that he provides. And I've seen it, not just only in my own life, but in the lives of, the, of others, and I would love to see it in yours. And this morning, we would like to share with you a story of a woman named Becky who's been attending FAC for about three years, who had no background in the church no background in Christianity. And I want to just share this story with you, a woman who firsthand experienced the life-giving power of Jesus. I'm going to pray, and then we'll watch Becky's story together. Dear Lord, we thank you for what Christ has accomplished on our behalf. Father, I am helpless, and I am a hopeless man who, who... has no hope of putting the pieces together in my own life. And so I thank you, Lord, that Jesus came on a mission to do that for me. I thank you, Lord, that I can call on you to, to fill the pieces that only you can fill. Lord, I pray as we watch Becky's story that there would be power behind her words, power behind her eyewitness account of what you've done in her life. We're so thankful for her story, Lord, and I ask that you would bless these next few minutes as we watch her tell her tale. In your holy name I pray, amen.